Welcome to Extra Musical, the podcast where we delve into the lives, thoughts, creative process, and hobbies of musicians and other creative artists. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit www.hiddencinemarecords.com podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and everything else going on at HCR, become a patron at www.patreon.com slash hiddencinemarecords. Today, we're joined by Erica Seguin. She's a composer, conductor, pianist, educator, and co-leader of the 21 musician Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra. Their upcoming debut album, The New Day Bends Light, which will be released on March 31st, 2023, was produced by renowned composer and band leader Darcy James Argue and deals with psychological themes of mental illness, struggle, and healing. We look forward to sitting down with this award-winning composer in our conversation today. Let's get to the interview. Hi, everyone. We're sitting down with Erica Seguin. Uh, you just heard a little bit about her from her introduction, but it's uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming out, Erica. It's such a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun today. I said coming out like you're 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 we're sitting in front of each other like you're <laughs> you're in New York and I'm uh, I'm not. <laughs> so we're very far away from each other. <laughs> That's the beauty of, like, the internet nowadays is that, like, you could just, like, see someone in Australia and you could <laughs> just, like, you know, have, like, a face-to-face conversation. Funny enough, I do have an interview scheduled with a composer from Australia soon. Is that Vanessa Perica? Yeah, girl! Her awesome. music is awesome! Sorry, <laughs> her way later is. in the year, but her music is killing. So I'm very excited to talk to her. Um, so for the listeners here, uh, who is Erica Seguin? What's your story? Like, who are you? What do you do? Where are you based? What's your story? Okay, so... I am a composer, arranger, conductor, pianist, teacher, um, and I'm co-leader of the 21 musician Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra. Um, I'm also a core team member and event host with jazzcomposerspresent.com, which um, interviews um, various some of the best jazz composers living today um, and features composer spotlights and listening sessions. So um, let's see. In addition to co-leading actually our jazz orchestra um so our jazz orchestra actually has been together for almost 12 years actually since june uh 2011 that's a long time it is um and definitely the band has developed a lot over those years over time like really getting to know the music finding you know the right match of personnel which can always be a challenge a little bit Mm -hmm. but We've been, yeah, but essentially, like, you know, as a jazz orchestra, I've been together since um, June 2011. So, yeah, approaching the 12 year mark. But um, I've also composed, arranged for a lot of other ensembles, such as the Metropole Orchestra, the Danish Radio Big Band, the Symphonic Jazz Orchestra. Um, Symphonic Jazz Orchestra is like a studio orchestra out near LA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're familiar with them. Yeah, you're kind of living my dream as you say this, because these are the uh, bands and uh, ensembles that I would like love to one day work for, but know that like that's the eventual goal. So like Erica Seguin, everyone is just like I'm vicariously living through her introduction right now. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Um, yeah. So I've arranged for a bunch of and composed for like, you know, commissions for some of these ensembles. I've also... um, 
worked as a conductor for many of uh, New York City's big bands right now that are happening or large ensembles like um, Meg Okura's Pan-Asian Chamber Jazz Ensemble. Yeah. In fact, yeah, she has a, a CD that I know they um, we recorded it back in May last year, so I think it should be coming out hopefully later this year, but oh, cool. her music is incredible. So yeah, I've, I've actually seen, I've seen you two and, uh, and, and me, um, in a band together, maybe like five years ago, that was the first time I like saw you live and I was like, Oh, yeah, that was the J orchestra. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, it was such a cool con. What was the J orchestra for our listeners? So, um, Meg put together this ensemble. Essentially it features, um, cause Meg is both Jewish and Japanese. I got to um, kick my cat out real quick. Um, okay, I'm going to re-ask the question in a second. My lady, for the people, I pause in the show. Uh, for the people listening, uh, I'm kicking out my cat. I'm going to edit this into the episode so you can know <laughs> that if you ever hear a meow on the podcast, there is a cat named Lady Day that, yeah, it just happened, that was named Lady Day, and she's named after Billie Holiday. She's the most talkative cat in the world. So I'm going to kick her out real quick. <laughs> no, bud. Here, come on, yeah. Aww, I know. Sweetie. Gosh darn it. Poor sweetie. Been, <laughs> I love cats. I've been trying to experiment with like keeping her in the room and it's not working. She's like, ah, pay attention to me. The other cat doesn't care about me at all. Do you have cats? Uh, well, um, where I used to live, we had three cats actually, and um, there was one Naima. Actually, while she doesn't like, um, while she doesn't go too often, she will jump on your lap. Like if she know, like if you want her to jump on your lap and everything, she won't. She doesn't want to come up. But if she knows that you're busy, like if you have a deadline, yeah, like then she loves jumping on your lap, jumping over your keyboard, uh, being like me, give attention to me, start uh, clawing yeah. at you. Yeah, so, no. but if you were like, if you're just chilling and you're like, you know, Naima, come up. Yeah, we got um, Lady this kitty bed, this like little cat bed to sit there because for the most part, all she wants to do is chill out near me. But as soon as I'm doing something, as long as there's not a saxophone involved, because if I pick up a saxophone, she runs. But as soon as I'm doing something like intently, she's like she like comes over and pats me on my leg and goes meow. So that's what she was doing. She was like patting me on my leg to be like pet me. I love you, pet me. So anyways, we were talking about the, <laughs> the J Orchestra. Uh, so the J Orchestra was what again? You, you Megakora, and uh, Megiwa Miyajima. Actually, the J Orchestra is, um, there's a variety of different composers. So Meg oh. is both Jewish and Japanese. So the idea is that she brings different composers on that are Jewish and or Japanese. And I grew up half Jewish. Yeah. Pretty heavy um, Jewish upbringing, actually. So that's why I was invited to be part of that concert with Miggy and Meg. So that, yeah. But I remember that's how we met. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really great um, concert. Uh, I think there were a couple of different premieres that night. And right. uh, I'd never been to a JCC before. Uh, I still get emails from them. I don't know why I haven't unsubscribed. I don't live in <laughs> Manhattan. <laughs> It's just, like, really funny. But, uh, yeah, that's where we met, and that's where um, I heard your music for the first time. I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to follow this lady's career. 
uh, so it's been really cool to, to listen to you over the last five years or see the projects that you're involved with. Because as you said, you're a conductor too. And a lot of the times when there's those um, player composers who also want to play in their music, you're conduct, I see you as the conductor. Yeah, that was actually um, something I never saw myself becoming, let's say, 12 years ago when we yeah. started, you know, our big band together or before that. Like, I always saw myself when I was growing up primarily as a composer. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, like, I, I loved composing music. I never thought that growing up, at least, that there was the need, oh, if you're a composer, you have to either be a player or a conductor or whatnot. And I do find it fascinating because... In the classical world, so I'm kind of going on a rant here a little bit. But the whole, in the, it's um, a podcast. <laughs> That's <perfect>. the whole point. <laughs> but um, in the classical world, right, if you are a composer, you often can just be a composer. You're writing for this orchestra, this commission. This orchestra is going to play it. You don't have to be the feature performer in it or even mm-hmm. perform in the orchestra or conduct the orchestra. You just write. But... In the jazz world, and it's kind of um, below the surface, but it's there, I think. And it might be getting better, but there seemed to be always this expectation. If you want your music played, you either have to be an active member of the ensemble or you have to conduct. Yeah. So, which, yeah, I, I mean, personally, I think that expectation is bogus, but it seems to be kind of underwritten in there. I, I don't disagree with that, that I feel like that's part of the... I guess the idiom, the tradition, like the only time I can think of that not necessarily being true is the older days of when you had to write. I mean, bands had to have so much music and so quickly that they had like their their staff arrangers and stuff. So it's not like Gil Evans was performing in his things. But well, I mean, like he was, but like at first with the Claude, yeah, yeah, with the Claude Thornhill stuff, he was like just and like Billy Strayhorn and Mercer Ellington before Mercer Ellington took over. But like, other than like as time has developed it's like yeah you're the dude you're the person you get out there and do the thing you're either going to play something or you're going to wave your hands at something so let's go and you're totally right about the staff arranger but i guess i meant like more like if you are going to like really write these like epic like original yeah pieces like often and you're right about actually mentioning about gill actually that is a good example but yeah even in his earlier days like you heard i mean usually like he wasn't featured much on piano. He was very kind of sparse piano usually, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. But, um, so I felt like, okay, um, I'll conduct my own music, which that was its own adventure in itself. Um, but, and actually I really struggled learning to conduct at first cause I had a um, really hard time with coordination in general and oh. more like kind of, merging that um analytical let's really keep the beat and tempo kind of mind with that um kind of how to be expressive and fluid at the same time so I really struggled with that so I never saw myself as like okay I'm gonna conduct I'm just like gonna try to get through this so I can get my music played so it, it, it kind of like I freaked out loud at first and I was like trying to conduct my own music um but um over time and like I said, we've had our orchestra for almost 12 years. Over time, I kind of kept just improving, learning a lot by experience, you know, mm-hmm. just starting to try things. And I kind of started approaching conducting with like the sense of um, curiosity. Like, what if I try this? What if I try that? Rather than this kind of panic, like, oh, no, I better not like screw up something. 
you know, and like, which I did in my earlier days. So I started conducting then on top of my music, I was conducting Sean's music. And so I started becoming um, comfortable conducting other people's music. And then, uh, let's see, this was about end of 2014. I was invited to um, bring some of my music in with this reading band in the city called the Meeting House Jazz Orchestra. Okay. So they rehearse... um, do you know where the Friends Seminary is in New York? No. Yeah, Friends Seminary is, it's not too far from Union Square. It's a little bit um, okay. east of where Union Square is. But there's a school, but there's also this um, old Quaker meeting house. And there's um, a band, big band, that rehearses. It was then every Tuesday night. Now it's every Wednesday night post-COVID. But they rehearse, you know, and just kind of read down charts. And they invited me to come in and bring in some of my stuff. And then um, I had a concert, and then they invited me to just kind of keep coming in, both bringing my music and then just start conducting some of the other charts that they have in their book because they have an extensive book of stuff. Oh, yeah. So then I started becoming comfortable conducting even more pieces, and that's when I really started to just kind of experiment more. Okay, well, what if I just completely lay out here? Or what if I try to work more with the gesture shape rather than beating time here? Yeah. Or, okay, this part does need beating time, <laughs> even <laughs> if I want to just be more expressive and kind of more gesture-based. So I got to really do a lot of trial and error. I'm still with them. So that was like, it's now about... Is it almost nine years? Yeah, oh, I would say, yeah. Wow. So, a, I mean, we're over COVID, we did rehearse, but yeah. <laughs> so, that, I mean, like, that, it's it's must be really interesting to not expect that to happen, but that be a, a kind of large part of your performance life, where it's like, I'm pre- rehearsing and performing my music and Sean's music, but then also, like, conducting other people's music extensively because i i think i see you conducting remy's music sometimes um remy labeouf uh there's at this time because we're recording this in late uh january i think you're conducting sam's music i am conducting sam blakesley's like large group in february they have a performance at berlin which i think by the time this airs it'll be past that i think past but I can mention this. He's going to have a recording session for a few days in May. Yeah. So he's recording a new album, and I'm going to be conducting that. But that's something to keep your eye out or ear out for in the future. So he is recording, yeah, a new album. Um, so I've been co- I'm conducting with his group. Um, I've also conducted with um, Joel Harrison's big band. Okay. I've never, I've never heard of that big band. Should look that up. Yeah, you should. Um, he's great. Um, he's a guitarist and composer. Um he writes very well-crafted, um, really deep music, but then at the same time, there's definitely like a rock sensibility, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Um, but uh, actually, as we're recording this again, this a couple days ago, I um, conducted this piece that he, this new piece he wrote for Big Band and Choir. It's like actually like a Ooh. sacred work oh. for Big Band and Choir. So yeah, he's great. You should really check out Joel Harrison's music. And um, he has a CD out, um, Big Band CD, America at War, which has a lot of things about, you know, you know, like there's some music about protesting the war. And this was kind of some of the stuff back in like the Bush days. And yeah. so, yeah, I would check That's out heavy. that album. Yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff. 
Okay, yeah, I'll definitely I'll link it in the show notes for everyone listening uh, to our suggested listening. Uh, but I'll definitely uh, check that out beforehand. And Erica doesn't know this, but uh, Sam's actually, and hopefully you do know this because you've been listening. But Sam was our first episode on Extra Musical. So uh, as we're recording this, we've not released an episode yet but uh sam was our first episode hopefully you've donated to his gofundme for this album as me or eric or any other large ensemble leader can tell you it it, it was so expensive it costs it so much money uh so <laughs> yeah so getting uh supporting this art form of american music is really really important uh, so hopefully you've uh, been a part of that when this episode premiered. And if you didn't, you can uh, keep a lookout for news on Sam's music, on Erica's music, or any other large ensemble leader that you might, uh, Joel Harrison, any other large ensemble leader that you might know of. Uh, keep an eye out for their music because they need that support. It's, you said it's usually 17, but you said 21. I was listening to the album that you're releasing, and by the time this comes out, it will either have released or be upcoming. The date's March 31st, right, that it comes out? Right, March yeah. 31st. But you have 21 musicians. What's the instrumentation? Like, how'd you come to that choice? Okay. So um, if we look at our standard big band instrumentation, which I think that's where you get the 17 from because you think five reeds, usually four trumpets, four trombones, piano, guitar, bass, drums. I think that equals 17, yeah. right? Yeah, that's okay. that's what I use. I, that's yeah, do do trying to do math correctly. <laughs> um, so in addition to that, we have um, a vocalist. So yeah. on, on our album, um, Sonia Sundelson usually sings with our band, but on the album, it's actually Tammy Sheffer. She does okay. such a beautiful job with our album. And um, Meg Okura actually plays violin. So we already talked about Meg, but she plays violin on most of the tracks of our album. So we have vocalist, violin, we um, sometimes, some performances, and on this recording session, we definitely did so. We brought on a sixth woodwind. Oh, okay. So this way we could really open up our colors and, and stuff like that. There's some parts where I was like, okay, I could actually hear a little bit of piccolo in here now, or I really wish I had that extra woodwind. So that's why also part of that, and I think I include myself in that number, Oh, okay. So so, you know, I never include myself in that. I always include everyone. So that makes sense. Yeah. So that's um, why we get 21. So standard big band, vocalist, violin, additional woodwind, and then myself conducting. So with the additional woodwind, because orchestrationally to add the violin um, and the vocalist, uh, like the, adding the vocalist is something that I've heard of, uh, not heard of as in like, I've just heard of it, but like I've heard it many times. Uh, I remember uh, listening to Kenny Willer's uh, music for large and small ensembles oh, and being like, yeah, yeah. Anytime anyone mentions that album, I feel like a lot of people have the same reaction. Yeah. Like oh, oh, yeah. yeah I love that. it. It's so gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. So like that album um, and uh, just hearing um, vocalists on neutral syllable the whole time not scatting but not singing words and just singing along with the ensemble as a texture was beautiful i've heard violinists on top of big bands but like the sixth woodwind is a really special idea because like we always think of these woodwinds as pick up put down pick up put down but if they're just like oh no i'm just chilling with this i got it the whole time that like must add some sonic capabilities there was still some switching going on but um the idea was that i think we kept um 
I think Sean plays saxophones on the album, but we um I think uh doesn't play other or Sean definitely plays other woodwinds, but didn't play other woodwinds on this recording. So we had Sean dedicated playing saxophone okay. actually on this, and so then we kind of moved like yeah we still but I still heard these other woodwinds in addition to sax of course and yeah. so um. Kind of our sixth woodwind, I kind of put that kind of in quotes, but kind of Remy came on as like our sixth woodwind player, essentially. And so he added some piccolo, he added some alto flute. Um, Alto flute. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, gorgeous. Like, now normally that's probably like something I would not like on a live performance have, but since we had the luxury of, I mean, there's certain luxuries you get when you're in the studio too. First of all, it's hard to get that balance with alto flute because it is so hard. Yeah, it's hard for it to project, but. When you're in a studio situation, if you really want that color, it's like, okay, here's our chance to use that and actually hear it. I mean, that's an interesting thought of what we hear in these live studio recordings versus uh, when we go see the big band. What are the changes that we see? What are the what are the edits that have been made? What things sound smoother because they've been able to play it several times over? Uh, or what things sound even more impactful because it's live, like dynamically? I feel like right. when I see something live, there are some things that I prefer live or some things that I prefer uh, recorded and that in that look into the process is very interesting. Yeah. And often, often when we perform live, not all the time, but often when you perform live, we just have five woodwinds. And so we'll take out some of that, you know, extra color and everything. Partly that's just a logistical thing, both the yeah. space on the stage and just organizing. Even, I know it's just, you know, one extra musician when you're thinking already, there's like 20 musicians, you're like, one yeah. extra, but it's, it's, yeah, it makes a difference though, logistically, <laughs> but Let's organize 21 freelance schedules and be like, when can we meet? (laughs) Yeah, we could do a whole podcast, I think, on just like the logistical nightmares of leading a big band. (laughs) It's like I feel like people who are part of like a regiment, not a regiment as in big bands are unregimented, but an ensemble that has a weekly meeting time and a dedicated space and is part of a, a, uh, a system of some sort, whether it's like a nonprofit or a, uh, they're, they're like an orchestra, like a, 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 a symphony orchestra or something like that. Right. Don't know. Like you, you know that you're going to rehearse that day. So that's in your schedule. But with this, it's right. like, I don't even, I don't have a residency gig. So like, we're just like, going for the stars it's like this is the date we need to perform we need to shoot somewhere around that for a rehearsal and hopefully someone's available even like bands like like with the meeting house jazz orchestra that i've worked with that rehearses that place at friends seminary every now wednesday night i mean they have often it's like there's a lot of subbing out so it's like whoever can make it that night so like i mean they rehearse weekly but it's still even there there's a lot of subs being dealt with all the time a lot of like you know turn turnover yeah i mean because it's music you need to be available almost every night like someone can call you for any night it's not like oh no there's never a gig on monday or never a gig on wednesday yeah totally Man. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the reality of this whole big band world. Yeah. So uh, aside aside from, like, 
big band, um, like with your writing and with your creative process, well, how do you like stay creative in your typical day with when you're balancing uh, your teaching, your uh, your private lessons, teaching, uh, sorry, teaching your private lessons, uh, writing and practicing all this? What does like a typical day look like for you? Or is, the, is there such thing as a typical day? You know, I think that's kind of, um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think that we want to have this image. And even if you like, you read, um, biographies or, or like there's this book, actually, I think when I think about rituals and like, you know, what, you know, a day looks like, have you ever read that book, by the way, of that daily rituals, how artists work and everything where they kind of go, it has like these short blurbs, like from all, all facets of life, like I'll have like Mozart and then Steve Reich and then Sylvia Plath and then, um, Ayn Rand and then, um, I think Jackson, I forget if Jackson Pollock was in there, but some painters were in there and it would actually just say, this was what this guy person's typical day looks like. But so like we want to think <laughs> That's that, what oh, <laughs> this is what typical day is. But I really think that, um, it's a myth, especially with the needs or the way that modern kind of our modern times um, necessitate. So, I mean, well, I would love to just say, oh, there's this idea, you know, idealized schedule that I wake up and then there's two hours writing and then two hours practicing and then lunch and then teach lessons and dinner, then perform. It just does not. That was, uh, I feel like that was like, uh, the type of quote that Mozart had, or is it Beethoven? I think it was Mozart. Mozart had this quote, uh, and he went through his day like that. He's like, I, I wake up and I have tea. And then I write for two hours. It was in a music history book that I teach out of. And I was just like, well, I guess that's great for you, man. Like, <laughs> like we have, how many gigs does each musician have? Like, how are they going to just do this one regimented schedule? Like, you, yeah. you have the money to do that. We ain't got it. Or just the way the times were, like, you know, like, like, Back then, right, like composers were hired to be like court musicians or yeah. sacred musicians. And that was your job is your writing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go and do this. Like I'm going to go conduct this performance and then this day have a bunch of private lessons. But next week, that same time, I can't because I have this gig or I'm yeah. accompanying this audition or so it's um, kind of a myth. By the way, Beethoven, I think, was the counting the coffee bean. He was the counting coffee bean type person. I think or I think I read somewhere what? that he would like count a certain number of coffee beans each day before his day really started. I could be wrong about that, but I think so Beethoven was I'm confused. Does he count the coffee beans and then brew his coffee? Or like <laughs> is he like, I have to have this many coffee beans? Because we'd like Beethoven was semi-eccentric. So it's just like right. my I, I can only have coffee with like 322 coffee beans. <laughs> You know, I'm going to look that up right now. Why did Beethoven <laughs> count his coffee? Our trusty friend, Google. He would count out precisely 60 beans to start his day, the amount he believed be the optimal number for the perfect cup of coffee. Okay. All right. So it, well, it was original, like, he, I guess he felt it was the best cup of coffee. The original music barista. It was not Dan Pugach. It was, it was <laughs> Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, like, so. I I wish we all could have typical days, but I, every time I ask that question, I get, like, a different answer, but the same initial response. And I think it's kind of hilarious where we're like, well, I wish I had a typical day. So then, like, what does your creative process look like when you can do it? Like, how do you protect that time or how do you, like, stay in that time or how do you get in that headspace? So a lot of that, you know, as far as when there are the days the right is usually because, okay, there's either a free data right or there's a free chunk of mm-hmm. data right. And the other thing is that as far as composing, I mean, I know that people are saying, oh, that you shouldn't always wait until you're inspired to write a piece. But I know that, I mean, sometimes, yes, I have a commission. I have to force a piece, you know, out, you know, and just really just get it done anyways. But I know that for me, sometimes like, trying to force a process that's not there if I'm really just not feeling that you know need does not usually lead to my best results but when I'm let's say am inspired you know like I will often you know yeah there's been times where I like stay up until like the middle of the night you know just kind of non-stop you know working composing so but but then there'll be other times where I just have a total dry period um (laughs) so these inspirations are they coming from like from external sources is it more like this internal like aha or is it like oh this is such an interesting concept this is now i have this like fuel to write about it a little bit of each like sometimes there are definitely pieces i've write written that have been inspired by something extra musical whether it's nature whether it's like like real, which is on the album, was inspired because I um, impulse bought a hammer dulcimer when I was in Western North Carolina on vacation, you know, and then learned some um, Celtic music on it. And it oh, is that what real? real? Oh, you said real. Yeah, man, that piece is. Well, sorry, is real quick. Is that like real? But then like Bob Brookmeyer inspired real because man, sometimes you got in this these these this pedal motion, and once once this album's out. It's the opening track. It's extremely impactful. You're having so much fun. And then it gets like really like heavy, like in the middle. And not, not like a, not in a heavy, like I can't hold this or oh my gosh, but like heavy as in like a damn, like uh, the, the reel is going. And then there's these like low, and it's like almost polytonal for a second. And then I'm like, like oh, yeah. what is going on? I want to, I want to hear more of this. Sorry. Yeah. So oh, like, yeah. Re, like, like with the real, what was your, the inspiration was the hammer dulcimer. Well, yeah. So like I impulse bought a hammer dulcimer because I love the sound of it. Then it inspired me to check out some Celtic music, both listening to sessions and then like learning tunes with this guy. There was this guy that um, was a clarinetist, but he also played tin whistle. I learned some tunes with him and then learned about some of the stuff like crayons and all this kind of idioms about to the music. Um, so a combination of like listening to this music being, it's <laughs> you were like tin whistle. I was like, I have a tin whistle within reach. I think. Yeah. I know that was great. I was like, you brought out your tin whistle. That was awesome. Um, he, he actually encouraged me to get a tin whistle too. So I started also learning some tunes on tin whistle. Yeah. So yeah. So um, that just kind of all inspired me. Okay. Well, what if I write my own reel, try to create it. And I put this in quotes as authentic as possible. It sounds great. And then try to morph it into a big band, but keep the essence of some of that. Like keep like, like for example, every time I would go to these sessions and just listen in, I was just like, there's this joy. I mean, it is a joy excitement. So I yeah. kind of wanted to like, how can I morph this into a big band chart? Really like let's start again as quote unquote, un, I mean, authentic 
morph it into a big band chart, still keep those that feeling of being like, you know, just kind of listening to those sessions and just kind of absorbing it all. So that was kind of the idea. And then as far as like some of that low stuff, I mean, I just personally, I love earthy sounds. Yeah. I always like, like that kind of low stuff. So that's probably why like, you just oh. hear that is because I tend to like that earthy low fifths and yeah. It's just so fun to listen to up front. The only other real like jazz. Well, actually no, there oh, was this Fergus McCready or is it Michael something? Ah, uh, there's this, um, this Irish saxophonist, I think Fergus is his friend, but like there's this Irish saxophonist who has this one really stunning quartet album. Um, he's very young too. I think he's only like 21, 22. Um, and I was like, man, this is like really folky. And while listening to an interview from him, he was like, oh, no, I was just writing music that I like. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like it's culturally, I mean, that had to seep through. And the only other thing that I've ever heard reference a reel and be like a, a jazz product is um, Michael Brecker's It's Been Real. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. But also I um I know like someone sent me a while ago. I don't know if this has been publicly released or not or if this was just, you know, a track from maybe one of the concerts done over there. I know that Jim McNeely actually wrote a piece. I forget what it was called, but it was a reel for big band. Oh man. I don't know if this was something that was I forget if this was actually on a recording or if this was just part of a live concert and there was this recording of it. But we'll have he to find that out one. and put that in all those pieces that we're talking about. We'll put in the show notes as well because I like to put suggested listening, reading. So I look up the books that you mentioned. I look up anything that you uh, – if we end up talking about movies for some reason, which has happened several times, I end up putting that in suggested viewing. But it's just like what are people getting inspired by? What do we like to listen to? What makes us smile? Definitely that real – I mean the, the album itself has kind of many different feelings within it. But to open up with the real, I I didn't expect it. <laughs> so it's a little out of place, honestly, for me. I I always felt it was a little out of place in context of the rest of the album because the album itself, I feel the rest of it is kind of dark. Yeah, so I I'll, I'll, yeah. I would agree that like it's a a darker thing, but it's not necessarily completely out of place, especially with those earthy tones in it. You kind of transform this very lighthearted, like whimsical thing. I feel like I'm Jack and Rose on the Titanic. <laughs> in that scene you know uh where the reels going in the background um but like i feel like that but then out of nowhere when you put those earthy tones in it it's like oh i'm transported something where this is uh this is like pseudo not cinematic but like i feel something out of this yeah that i will say is probably a common thread not just about the album but of like all my writing is I feel like I like writing stuff that immerses you in something. Yeah. That's always like what I've, I loved. Like as a kid, I love this whole kind of like sensory world. Like sometimes I would see snowfall and it's like, I can hear the snow falling. Yeah. Like, so it's like, it's like almost like this kind of cross sensory kind of stuff or I hear a sound and I feel it somewhere in my body um, so I always kind of liked this world and like kind of like imagining like the inner life of stuff, which actually um, Kandinsky actually writes a little bit about the inner life. Of, so, I mean, when we talk later about like recommended books and writings and stuff, I'll mention Kandinsky actually, but like this whole like feeling like the inner life of stuff. And so when I write music, it's like I've always kind of creating those worlds, kind of immersive worlds. At least that's kind of what I like to achieve a lot musically. 
But um, yeah, the rest of the album, though, I'd say is more psychological in nature mm-hmm. overall. But real, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a fun opener for sure. It really is a fun opener. I didn't. I've. I think I got to listen to the album three times since you sent it to me. And the really, one, oh, that many times? Wow. Oh yeah. I, so I'll listen. I'll listen over and over. Uh, so I, I power lift and uh, I try and find a new thing to listen to over and over through sessions so I can internalize it uh, and get really, um, like, your melody to the real is... It's like, well, I can't take it. Uh, but it's like... I was singing the, the second theme, but yeah. <laughs> and then I think the, the first hit goes... And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, so like I try and internalize things, especially if I know I'm going to talk to the person about it. So like when we, we talked about Vanessa Perica earlier, I know when I go to talk to her, I'm going to really like ham, uh, not ham, but hard hardcore listen to love is a temporary madness like seven yes. times before i that was such a yeah it's just like such Beautiful a great shot. random first release that like happened also right at the beginning we had a conversation before the uh recording about uh releasing things right before the pandemic and that was another album that was like released right before the pandemic but luckily was not swallowed whole by it right i know like i i, I mean she's really taken off both as composer and conductor mm-hmm. actually like she's conducting a lot I forget, I forget what the project is called that she's conducting with australia but it's like it's i think this kind of multimedia ish kind of thing over there with this like full like orchestra yes, so yeah. it's really wonderful what she's I'm excited doing to ask her about it and get more like info on that and then well She'll talk about the next thing. I don't want to say anything. Okay. Because she had uh, told when we scheduled it, she was like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, ooh, I want to talk to you later after this next thing has happened. And you'll find out about the next thing eventually, extra musical listeners. So keep listening for several months. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Right? Um, So uh, is there anything outside of music or you feel that, like, contributes to your process, like, regularly? So you have these, like, moments of inspiration where um, you feel inspired to write, write, but is there something, like, either contributes to your process or at least keeps you grounded so that your process is not just like the only part of your life. So I'm trying to think about which angle here to go with this. So you're talking about more how to keep sane with the process right now or what's inspiring. Kind of, kind of both. uh, There's even a third part. So how to keep, how do you keep yourself sane when you're doing all this like coordination of big bands, other people conducting other people's work, uh, teaching uh, like all these jobs that musicians have because I, I rarely know one musician who has one job right so all these hats that we wear how do you keep yourself sane while you're doing it what are some things outside of music that you enjoy or just like what contributes to your process or if it doesn't keep you sane or if it doesn't contribute to your process what do you enjoy to do like what's one thing that you if you if you could start a podcast and it could be on something not musical what would you start a podcast on you know like I mean, I love like what exactly you talk about with creative process because um, I one of the things I love doing um, outside of music is actually reading a lot of books. Mm. Um, and one of the things I actually love reading about is about creative process and biographies. Like, oh, so that's okay. why I like recommended that you know book earlier, the Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. I love reading um, kind of like what other people like what other creatives and other fields um when they're writing about you know like what inspires them or their process like i love reading i mean 
maybe we'll talk about this later more with like books and stuff like that. But I love reading Van Gogh's letters. Oh, you can talk about it now. I mean, like I feel like right. you don't have to ask the exact questions in the exact orders. Like, yeah. But um, okay. So if I go down that route, because. When you're asking, like, or, 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 I'm like, okay, I could give answers to those, like, five different things, but each of those would be a long-winded answer. So let's, but, let's go with one. You, you, you already started talking about books. You, like, love reading about right. other people's creative process. You love reading in general. So, like, what books about creative process? Okay. Uh, you said Van Gogh's letters. What else? And then his um, biography, actually, which is really um, huge. Um, it's almost oh. a thousand pages long. Um, it's, I think, by uh, Gregory White Smith and Stephen Nife. I probably didn't pronounce his um, name correctly, but um, I mean, the letters, of course, primarily um, were from uh, Vincent to his brother Theo, okay. and it's just inspiring to um, read about how. Van Gogh would just find the most simplest, what would seem ordinary things, and just be inspired and find like little these kernels that would inspire these wonderful paintings. That and like his um both his biography as well as his letters touch on this, but I mean of course Vincent struggled a lot with like mental illness a lot. You mm-hmm. know, and there's a lot of psychological struggles and which is fascinating to me because I've struggled a lot myself with a lot of um psychological stuff particularly in the past so Mm -hmm. his letters particularly were inspiring because despite all his struggles he was always seemed determined to love and also to find beauty and to create even when he was like hospitalized oh wow so i i mean i love like reading his letters i love reading his biography another one about I think is really inspiring to create a process book-wise is um, Kadinsky, um, Vasily uh, Kadinsky, Complete Writings on Art. Okay. So um, have you heard of the um, his book concerning the spiritual in art? I I think I have. Like, I wait, I'm, I'm going to do some... I try not to click around while I'm recording, but I think it's something I have saved... Want to re keep going down, keep going down. Nope, nope, I lied. It's uh, no, so I've heard the name, so I don't, but I don't know what book we were talking about. So, Kadinsky is a painter, you know, he like does this kind of like quasi, you know, abstract stuff and the kind of these bright colors and shapes, but um, he also was a very prolific writer about art like there's like this book like yay thick and i know like the listeners can't see it but <laughs> i'm i don't have the book on me but i'm guessing it's probably near the thousand um page mark as well i know that between that and van gogh's biography take up almost half of a shelf on my bookshelf. Oh, but um so there's a I mean, probably his most famous written work is concerning the spiritual and art, where he talks about kind of like the inner life and more and portraying the inner life of objects rather than just the naturalistic what you see. It's kind of more of an intuitive what's beneath the surface. But um, he also has these, so this book has all these other writings too. Like I really like, there's this um, essay he wrote on the artist where he describes what he believes are like two different types of artists and some artists... Their art is actually developed more by inner development rather than like the set craft or method. Yeah. So I really, um, I, I love that book um, as well as far as creative process goes. Um, I mentioned the daily rituals. Um, not so much about process. Another book I really like is um, Testimony by Dmitry Shostakovich. 
Oh man, this I didn't realize Shasti wrote a book. Well, it's it's more as related to Solomon uh, Solomon Volkov. I might have again. I'm really bad with the pronunciation. Volkov, Volkov, so. Volkov. so, and there is some controversy. Some people say, "Oh, this is really Volkov," you know, stretched the truth a lot in some of this. But regardless, I find it a really fascinating book. And so, you read a lot about his life as a composer in the Soviet Union. Yeah, and. Particularly when um, the war in Ukraine like escalated the last February, mm-hmm. I was like inspired to kind of go check out and read what he had to say again. Um, and so he would like write about like how one moment he is essentially the the composer representing the Soviet Union. He is loved, you know. Stalin, you know, was like you know loved him and his music. And then the next moment he would write another piece. And then all of a sudden, he is, like, first or second on, like, the list of composers to be executed. Oh, my gosh. So, which is, yeah, it's scary. and yeah, terrifying. Yeah. And also, he goes on, I mean, he talks about a lot of people that he loved, other creatives that he loved and, he, you know, lost due to uh, Stalin's regime. Um, but also... It gets in a little bit about um, music that um, music that he wrote and how it was misinterpreted a lot. That the suffering, that music that was written based on the suffering, that silent suffering of living under this regime, was misinterpreted a lot as okay. This is actually representing the tragedy of World War Two or so and so. That but it was really just being underneath this regime and being kind of like silenced and yeah. being in fear. So oh, wow, that's like a extremely heavy introspective and retrospective like topic that I've not even thought to, I guess the first time that anyone had ever uh, like said anything close to that was, uh, were you at Jack when, when Darcy presented, did you, have you ever been to Jack? Not at any of the live conferences yet. I've always wanted to go. Oh man, they're so fun. You should go. Yeah. I um, know, but it's expensive. It is. <laughs> the great, like I got my university to pay for if you, if like, yeah, or, or the state arts council. Anyways, um, he had talked about, it was kind of similar. He talked about, um, the 12 tone system in the second Viennese school and, was talking about why they were right or like some of the feelings behind writing in a 12 tone system and why like the, the romantic sentiment didn't matter anymore after world war one and world war two back to back and talked about like the gruesomeness of war and how like everyone's like friends died. And then the 12 tone system. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a context. There, there, yeah, exactly. The context to all of it. So like thinking of Shostakovich in that context, makes it sad. It's sad. I, I guess I like, I mean, it's probably reflects in my music too. I like reading a lot of heavy stuff a lot. As yeah. you can probably, or you see, I guess if I were to go on some lighter stuff and this is kind of getting farther away now from creative process itself or reading about, but some other books on a much more lighthearted, let's go with. <laughs> um, a book that I go back to every few years, and this is actually a very short book, so this is the opposite of, like, that Kandinsky writings of art or the, the Van Gogh, you know, um, biography or letters. Games, yeah. um, I th- I'm not sure if this is even 100 pages long or not. 
it might be over just because of all the pictures of seagulls in this, but um, a book I always go back to is um, Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. The book is called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Yes. Okay. So um, it's essentially, I mean, I'm not going to give everything away, but just kind of the beginning gist of it, um, the seagull that is kind of not like the others in his flock. So whereas the rest of the flock is flying essentially or learning to fly just so they can just, you know, go through their day-to-day life of getting food and fighting for, you know, just getting every morsel of food. This one seagull is practicing flight for the sake of flight. So he's always working on perfecting his flight and finding new ways to reach new speeds or or altitudes. And and so he's always finding new ways, you know, and, and of, like, finding perfection. Mm-hmm. And... um. I'll give maybe just this part away, but then not go beyond. But he ends up getting ostracized by the flock for this. So I love going. It's it's actually a very heartwarming book. Um, I go back to the, this book, like I said, every few years or so. And it's a short read and kind of reads like a children's book, honestly. Like, oh, cool. I think like a child could read it. But um, it's always inspired me to like especially when things kind of get hard. It inspires me to like continue with passion, always kind of reach for that. Um, sense of perfection, not really for competition or even like this idea of personal best, but just for the sake of the act itself. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, I mean, I feel like that has to be like a, a, a read for me now. Uh, it's a very inspiring read. Now, the interesting thing is years ago, like, so when I originally read this book, there were three parts and I don't know how long ago now, but more recently, it was definitely well before COVID, but more recently there was a fourth part. And I never felt the fourth part of the, like the fourth part that wasn't released originally got released. There was a new edition with the fourth part. So I actually bought also the version with the fourth part in it. And the fourth part was just kind of weird. Like I understand why it was actually left out. Um, and it mm-hmm. didn't, it kind of lost some of its lightheartedness, I felt. Um, oh, no. Okay. It's like, uh, it's I mean, like not, Dr. not in a bad going. way, but just like, it just didn't feel like it belonged with like the overall theme to me. Um, like, oh, okay. I think they, yeah. So, I mean, if you get the, I mean, I probably, the versions that are published now have the fourth part in it, which is totally fine. Read the fourth part. But it was like the first three parts that were originally published and the version I read initially, I think I, read this book first when I was 17 and um it's um greatly inspired me over the years especially the first three parts okay well we'll definitely have a compiled list of like suggested reading uh from Erica's bookshelf because (laughs) we want to experience what like other people experience I think one of the best parts about interviewing all these people is just hearing what lights up your world and then like I hope someone listening goes, oh, man, I feel like I need to read or I need to hear something like that. And they do. And they were right. And they did need it. And we got them what they needed based off of your thoughts. That, that's, that'd be a really cool thing if it happened.
thinking, okay, so away from maybe reading too that um, inspires me from, and I go on and off with this. Like some, there will be months sometimes where I don't practice this, and there and there will be months where I'm practicing this on almost daily basis. But particularly inspires me as a conductor, but also inspires my overall um, kind of like life view is actually practicing um, qigong. Qigong. Um, so is that a martial art? Is that a like a, um, a sort of movement? Is that or not movement, a s- but movement series? Like, what is it? It's sort of like a movement series, and it's related to Tai Chi, which is kind of considered like a type of like, you know, martial art. But um, it's like an energy. I mean, some people liken it to energy cultivation. Okay. Um, but my experience of it more is actually... Like, I feel like we already have the energy, so it's more like energy awareness for mm, me. Okay. Um, at least that's, like, my perception from practicing it. It's not so much cultivation. It's like, I feel like we already have it, but it's awareness. But um, it is a series of movements, and there are various different types of Qigong. I often like to um, practice the 18-movement uh, series. Okay. Are these, like, um, forms? Because, like, I remember when I studied Taekwondo... Uh, when I was like a kid, you would learn forms. They're like, um, uh, like movement series where, but within to learn the moves and then to practice like the form of the moves, I guess. Oh, that's where the title comes from. Ah. Uh. Yeah. There is a sense of like, there's these moves and there is a perfection of like the form of them, mm-hmm. but it's, like, I'd say easier to learn than things like overall than things like taekwondo or tai chi or um because it's energy based does it have to do with like chakras like with the moves or i don't usually hear it related to chakras and i don't think um traditionally it is with that but there's like things like where you're imagining bringing energy from the earth and then Mm -hmm. bringing it to the sky and then bringing it to the sides and imagining like you're holding a ball of energy like I would say for listeners out there, right, it's the idea if you put your hands kind of close together, right, and if you're in tune with it, first of all, you'll feel a sense of heat, but you might also start feeling a sense of resistance at some point. It's like, okay, that's the point there where I don't, like, like you almost have to push further to push your hands in. So there's, like, you can almost feel like a ball or like a, like, um, a force in between. So that's how, like, kind of very basic, you might feel something like that. But then you might also feel, like, expanding and contracting. Okay. So, like, just being aware of the energy that your body kind of creates in its movements with each other and the movements outside of it? I'd say, yeah, between your body and outside. I mean, really, which then just kind of makes me kind of kind of almost, almost sounds woo-ish. But, I mean, is there really an end to our body versus outside oh. is all part of the same. Oh, I don't know. That's an idea. Oh man, that's you're 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 opening it up. I feel like someone needs to like we need to sit around like a fire and discuss this for like two hours. <laughs> does your does your body ever actually end? I know it sounds joking in this, but like I I don't know. I don't know enough to even end. Like, try to answer that question. But the movements that I'm watching her do while we're talking about this kind of remind me of, like, um, like vinyasas. I know it's not, like, the same thing at all, but it kind of reminds me of, like, um, like uh, yoga movements uh, sometimes. Uh, but, like, it's called, it's called qigong. 
Right, Qigong. And there's oh. a few different ways it's spelled. Like, you know, you might, um, I think traditionally you'll see Q-I-G-O-N-G, but sometimes people might say, oh, C-H-I, but it's supposed to be a Q-I. Um, but uh, anyways, like, it really kind of got me opening up to really kind of feeling, and this is related to a whole nother journey I had, but it's just kind of the idea that everything is energy. Sound is energy. Light mm-hmm. is energy. Color is energy. Movement is energy. Um And so when I'm conducting a lot, um, what you see on the score, there's a potential energy there. I didn't know this sounds woo again. There's a potential energy there Mm -hmm. you see in the score, which then can be translated to your body movement. And then it's about finding the right body movement that inspires the sound that's going to come out. So it kind of directly influences the way you conduct as well. It does. I mean, I feel that way at least is that, yeah, I'm like always kind of pushing or pulling energy or cutting it or floating through it or, or kind of pulling this murky energy versus, okay, it's kind of smooth going here. Um, so that influences me there. It also influences, I probably think my writing to composing, mm-hmm. but I mean, I notice it most conducting. Wow. I, so Qigong, I'm definitely going to see if I can find some um, some videos to link in the show notes for, like, what is Qigong? And then hopefully, like, someone explaining a, um, not a form, what did you call it again? Well, I would say, if you were to look, for, see if you can find somewhere where someone's doing the 18 form version, like an instructional video. So then, okay, cool. So then everyone can experience it for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, I I've appreciate you make me aware of, uh, of, of Qigong in the first place. Um, so we got to like suggested reading, listening and viewing actually, uh, <laughs> really, uh, really, um, organically. Um, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like the listeners to know about? We were talking about some sort of recording, but I don't think we've ever actually said it out loud. <laughs> Oh, no way. Yeah, that's right. We haven't even mentioned the album. We're talking about we never been like, okay, this is the project. Well, that's so. I'm glad the whole thing is not, this isn't necessarily a promo podcast. This is a, who are you? What do you like to do podcast? And oh yeah, also I have this thing that I've been doing type of thing. So what's the thing that you've been doing? <laughs> yeah, that thing we've been doing has only lasted almost four years. And, and you know, we only had our band, like I said, for almost 12 years, but... Yeah. This thing that we've been doing. Um, so the uh, orchestra I co-lead, the Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra, we're releasing, finally, our, yeah. <laughs> for, on many levels, our debut album. Um, it's called The New Day Bends Light um, on March 31st, 2023. So I don't know if this is going to air before or after that, but that's the release date. It is. It's gonna um, release right before it. Perfect. So it will release soon, March 31st, 2023. Um, and it's it features compositions and one arrangement by myself and co-leader Sean Baker. Um, there's seven tracks on the album. I would say that this album is not all of it, but primarily like an psychological exploration. There's like some themes about the couple pieces are inspired by um, going through mental illness. There's a couple pieces that there that are more about kind of that inner journey. Like there's a piece that Sean wrote really that's kind of about lucid dream, like about a lucid dream, which is really cool. Um, but then there's also a couple pieces that, that are kind of just about 
for us what it kind of meant to heal or find solace in something or comfort. So the album, yeah, there's like seven tracks in the album for that. Like I said, six originals. And then um, the arrangement I wrote of um, Nurit Hirsch's melody to Osei Shalom, which was a piece I always um, loved growing up in synagogue. But um, that will be releasing March 31st, 2023. And yeah, it was a long process because we went into the studio on August 2019. Yeah. So August 2019 and March 31st, 2023 are very far apart. What were some of the uh, struggles that happened well we know one i hope everyone listening to this podcast <laughs> understands one big struggle that happened for everybody uh during that time so yeah unless what, you're like, like you happen to sleep under a rock you know through those couple years which in that case you're probably blessed <laughs> yeah, for you, man like i'm fine show me that rock just in case it happens ever again <laughs> <laughs> so covid i'd say I mean, there were other things that kind of held us back, too. But I would say COVID, in a lot of ways, affected the whole post-recording process. So we recorded August uh, 2019. The first um, period, our engineer was available to work on editing and mixing with us was March 2023. I mean, 2020. So you can kind of have an imagine, like imagine what happened. So we were originally supposed to start working on editing and mixing March 2020. And then we saw we obviously wouldn't be able to do that in person then. So then we postponed to May 2020, then August 2020. And then when we were thinking about doing (laughs) December 2020, um, our producer, Darcy James Argue, um, was like, you know, if you wait until um, you're able to do in person again, you won't do this for two years. So we did all our editing and mixing remotely. Which is hard. Yeah. So to do that, first of all, I mean, we use a streaming service and, you know, phone call with our engineer. But what you really have to do, I and mean, you should do this anyways, even if you're not... Um, doing this remotely if you're doing this in person as a big band leader or the leader of a group is we but we really had to be mindful of doing this particularly doing this remotely is to have very detailed notes of everything you wanted to edit beforehand so we would um i would go in i would go import each individual track into logic i would listen to each take be like you know what this take is the best but let's rep- place this note here let's tune this note let's shift this slightly over and i would make pages and pages and pages being like this time code yeah use this take this time code let's fix this plus measure numbers so it was a lot of extensive work that like i said probably should have to do anyways even if you weren't doing this remotely but particularly when you're doing remotely like doing your homework almost as if you were editing and mixing yourself, but without necessarily the ability and skill to. Yeah. Do okay. It. That yes. makes sense. I mean, that, that must add a whole extra, not like pandemic aside, the, the despair of, of just not knowing what's happening in all of that time. And then knowing that like, you, you still have to prepare to, or like you want to prepare to, to have this project be put together. So I have to do, this very extensive and remote work to get it done. I can't, I can't imagine. 
And then if your internet provider wasn't great, <laughs> oh gosh, we had we had Optimum at the um, time, and or I don't know if I'm allowed to like do this as like a because this is kind of bashing Optimum. Am I allowed to? That's do this okay. On the We're not sponsored by Optimum. We are anti-Optimum podcast. Just kidding, Optimum. If you want to sponsor us, we will. You know. <laughs> Give me money, and I'll say all the nice things about you. I'll sell out like real quick for Optimum. Anyways, you had Optimum at the time. And um, our engineer likened it to Sloptimum because there would be a lot of times that that we'd be in the middle of a session, and half the day our internet would just go out. It was like, oh. yeah, they were not reliable. Yeah, and oh. we, and Sean was on the phone with Optimum kind of being like, why aren't we getting the internet service that we're paying for? Apparently they weren't even giving us the internet service that we paid for and gave us a lower grade, even though we paid for a higher grade, all this other fun stuff. And it kept going. And it wasn't like it was just once. It kept, it was like an ongoing thing that ran through the whole period that we were editing and mixing. I retract my former statement about Optimum. Uh, <laughs> if they will treat the jazz composer community uh, as such, I can't imagine what they'll do to all of their customers. So, Optimum, you can never sponsor this podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. If you, this if you do, though, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> Obviously, you know, this is an unsponsored podcast. So, I'm like, anytime someone's like, hey, this podcast episode is brought to you, I was listening to a podcast and they would just make up sponsors and it was uh it was a john mulaney and nick kroll podcast and it was like this is actually hilarious that they keep doing that um as we wrapped up uh uh we have the new day ben's light coming out on march 31st uh we have the big band uh getting ready for their um there's a, a a performance too right there's a release yeah as i was about to say i should probably mention there's going to be a release party april 2nd at birdland so april it's sunday april 2nd 5 30 to 7 it's just one set but it'll be at the um renowned and wonderful birdland jazz club um i love it there spot man yeah 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 oh that's a great club it is i love seeing shows there and like when we were asked to first play uh october uh 2022 it was just like i was ecstatic and i just loved you know bringing the band there so we're bringing the band back for now our cd release sunday april 2nd um and we will be performing all the tracks from the album awesome well um is there anywhere listeners can find you or sean and or sean online yes um so you can find uh my actually so you can find my music at or some of some clips of my music and more about you know me at www.ericaseguin.com i should probably spell out my last name i'll put it uh, in the w- show notes oh, they got it thing. yeah all right and then um sean's music you can find actually there's a youtube channel that we have um that you can find both mine and some of Sean's music um, performed by our jazz orchestra on. So maybe I can just send the link for that. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. The, uh, the chat. So, um, you can definitely check out Sean's music there. Obviously you can check out the music. Once the album drops, we're going to be on Bandcamp. So yeah, definitely. That's <laughs> Under, a lot. Um, yeah, orchestra's name. That's a very exciting, uh, thing to have coming up. Uh, I really appreciate all your thoughts on your creative process and like just your thoughts on conducting on qigong on uh the different and like sometimes really heavy but inspiring books that you read and just like who erica seguin is in the first place uh 
Anything you want to uh, say before we leave? I mean, this was just a fun time. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> this is great. I, I love talking about creative process, and I love talking about stuff that, like, outside of music that um, inspires because, yeah, I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, right, I'm, I mean, I think we talked about this a little before mm-hmm. the podcast. The first thing we are, we're humans first. Yeah. That was yeah, I remember when I was in grad school, actually, at William Patterson, and um, I was studying with Rich DeRosa at the time, and he was, like, mentioning, okay, well, when did you start piano lessons? I'm, like, nine, which is actually, relatively speaking, pretty late age for, if you're, you know, do pianist, you know, but he was like, okay, so you had nine years first of being a human. Then yeah. you had. So, I mean, what we're portraying, like, I mean, I've talked already about portraying energy but what we're portraying is essentially some facet of life with our art so it's really cool to just talk about what inspires us you know yeah. what yeah so thank you for this oh no thank you for talking about what inspires you i really appreciate that we have all of our musical and extra musical portions of our lives and hopefully the extra musical portions of our lives are the things that shine through in our music in our art in our like every day. So uh, you just listened to uh, Erica Seguin. I'll include some more about uh, her and her projects in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Extra Musical. Uh, Erica, thank you for being on. Thank you. Likewise. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Extra Musical. Extra Musical is a Hidden Cinema Records production. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts and look out for future episodes. Bye for now.